Hi, everyone. Welcome to the April 1st, 2022 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will start right off the top. A little bit of a different setup today. We have a little bit of miscommunications. We have three wonderful guests joining us. And this is an April Fool Jokes free edition of Colorado Inside Out. We thought we'd be, no, we're not going to try to be clever as, you know, trying to put capital letters in certain things. If, if you're on Twitter, you know what I mean. We're just going to play it as it is with this wonderful panel. Let's get right to it. The city of Denver has been ordered to pay out a total of $14 million to 12 people who suffered injuries inflicted by the Denver Police Department during the George Floyd demonstrations. According to the jury, police demonstrated excessive force that both violated First Amendment rights and caused unnecessary physical injuries. Patty Cahoon from Westward, as always, we start with you. $14 million is a lot of money for any city, but especially Denver. What kind of impact do you think this uh, jury decision will, be, will have? Well, it's definitely no joke, a $14 million decision. And it came through pretty quickly. After three weeks of testimony from just about everyone under the sun, the jury was not out very long. This is the first federal decision related to protests after the George Floyd case and the riots after the George Floyd murder. And we'll be seeing more of them. That's, I think, one ramification. Denver has to decide if it's going to appeal or not. I think other ramifications will be Someone had floated Paul Payson's name as a possible mayoral candidate. I would think this definitely knocks that out. Uh, Nick Mitchell's testimony and parts of his report, he was the former independent monitor who left right after he'd done a report on the re police response. Uh, that was fairly damning. You also saw, though, there was some behind the scenes um, some jockeying for position. Police are loved to gossip as much as anyone outside of journalism, and I think there was a lot of manipulation of how the Denver police would be presented. But there was no question. Communication was horrible during the riots. You wonder what lessons we'd learned from being prepared for the Democratic National Convention here in 2008. All the communications that were supposed to be in place then certainly weren't in place in 2020. The DPD did not have a handle on it, and here's the result. David Kopel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. You know, policing hasn't needed any other chilling effects to it uh, for the last two years, but this seems to me this isn't going to help, especially at least in Denver. What do you think? Well, it's, it's a verdict, according to a Fox 31 data investigation, the size of the verdict is about the same as, as in comparable cities in, in comparable situations over the last eight years. One of the issues the jury was thinking about was the Denver's defense lawyers said, look, uh, most of these uh, injuries were caused by other police departments because we were overwhelmed and we, we did a call for aid and they, they came in so you shouldn't sue us. And the defense, the, the plaintiff's lawyers said, well, but they were all under your operational command, even if imperfectly, and obviously the jury agreed with that. And I, I guess my view is, is I, didn't, I wasn't in the jury box. I didn't attend the whole trial and see all the evidence, and, and the jury did. So I don't want to cast any aspersions or, or doubt on their verdict. And there were some serious injuries of, among the victims who, who sued, like a guy whose, whose skull was fractured. And so the, there were a lot of peaceful protesters on the street. And of course, they, they didn't do anything wrong. They were exercising their, their First Amendment rights. But holding people accountable for the injuries in these demonstrations shouldn't just stop with the police officers who did something wrong. Many police officers, too, were violently attacked. Over 70 were injured. Jaws broken, people hit by cars, serious bodily injured injuries, rocks, bottles, bricks being thrown at them. And these came from the violent criminals, a lot of them, who attacked the police 
they rioted, they looted, they burned, and they intentionally created an atmosphere of violence. And they are the ones who are ultimately responsible. Rounding our panel takes, we have a, th a three-person panel, uh, a longtime political reporter and columnist and a dear friend, Lynn Bartles. Thank you so much for being here. Lynn, this is a big thing for a city that has uh, been just beginning to deal with all the ramifications from the last couple of years. And we're on the cusp of some municipal elections in 2023. I got to believe that this is going to add fire to what is already going to be a pretty hot election. What do you think we will see as ramifications from this decision? Well... Already, you see the whole fight over the police chief. Should he go? No, let's defend him, keep him there. I think those of us who watched the news reports when that was happening were just kind of like dumbfounded by what was going on. I know friends that went and marched. I mean, there's someone in my building. She's in her 60s. Her husband's, uh, her son was a defense attorney, and she went down there because she thought you had to throw, show support. This is not somebody who would ever, like, throw a bottle at a police officer and all that. And there was that group that kind of marches for anything and causes trouble. We've seen them before. But um, the injuries were severe. I was also did not follow the trial closely. I was not shocked by the size of the verdict, quite frankly, because you just police verdicts in the last couple of years have just been so, you know, big and large. Also, that report was so damaging about the problems within the police department. Like when you read that, you said, wow, that verdict's going to be ugly because it was true that they were there. Now, I'm also, uh, you know, that there's a part of me that said, can we set aside like every person who got something or the attorneys, their huge fees that they're going to get, could they maybe pay the um, deductible for all the people who had to replace their vehicles and their windows and everything else that happened? It was just such a sad chapter. And you mentioned um, the Democratic Convention. Well, that you could prepare for. And I mean, this was... You know, to me, it was the police response uh, following a couple days later, like they knew it was going to happen. I still didn't feel that they were prepared once they knew that first night when everything went to hell. Mm -hmm. True. In an effort to reduce vehicle emissions, state lawmakers are working with RTD to create a fare-free transit pilot program. If passed, the bill would put $14 million toward free transit programs for the next two summers. Uh, David, this seems to be uh, centering on kind of the high ozone months in the middle of summer. Um, it, it feels like a good idea, just kind of, hey, it's going to be free to ride the bus or light rail. The other part of me wonders that it's, it's a little bit risky for RTD because if it's free and people still don't ride, that is not going <laughs> to look good. But let me not be a cynic at this point. What do you think about this proposal currently in the legislature? Well, we, we can look at how these things have, have worked elsewhere. Um, They've been, free fare programs have often been pretty successful in, in small systems like college towns. You very rarely see them ever being sustainable in, a, in something like RTD where you have a fleet of over 100 buses. And of course, RTD is well over that. Uh, we can also look at the, when this was tried in Denver in 1979, when the federal government's Urban Mass Transit uh, Administration gave a grant to RTD to do free fares for off-peak. Uh, the ridership went up 
by 39 to 46 percent. Now, these, the study of that by the Urban Mass Transit so, uh, Administration said, well, that, that's true, but also RTD was redesigning its routes and, and improving things in other ways, so not all of the increase came from that, but clearly a lot did. Uh, the study uh, of, of how this grant work also worked also found there was more crowding and decreased scheduled reliability, but probably the biggest reason it ended was because of the bus drivers uh, who complained about excessive rowdiness among younger passengers and what they believed were conditions that jeopardized their safety and that of passengers. Uh, in short, drivers seemed to have more hassles with problem passengers. And that happened at the other cities where the, the same pilot program was implemented. So if we're gonna put $14 million of taxpayer money into this, some of that should be spent so that the security level of buses is very solid, which it wasn't last time anybody could get on without paying. And I gotta believe RTD drivers and operators are going to want to make sure that security is there. It's already of a high concern, so yeah. it's a good point, David. Uh, Lynn, uh, it starts in the legislature, so it's a state program, and it has to work with RTD. Do you think that could work? Could this be something that, you know, while it's been tried in other cities, is this maybe jump jumpstart an effort where you see the legislature and RTD working closer together to address at least trying to get more people into mass transit? Well, you know, I've covered RTD, and I've written RTD, and one of the things I, and when I worked for the Secretary of State's office, had I wanted, I could have had a bus pass at almost nothing. And it always bothered me that the poor person with the minimum wage job is struggling to feed the meter. Well, people with government jobs or downtown jobs or whatever could just show their pass. It was great their companies did that. It reduced, you know, like they said, the emissions. You had to deal with the, pro with the parking problems down there. I, I actually, you know, I, I said before, why don't they make it free? And they go, they already have financial problems. What would that do? And I think if you did have the security, I'd love to see not even just during the peak hours and the off-peak hours, but everything's all about emissions all the time. You know, like we can't let people drive their cars because they might, you know, emissions. We have to make traffic in Denver a nightmare to get through because we put bike lanes on major streets where they're not being used. And the, that's the huge thing is, I, you know, let's move traffic. That will help the emissions problem. It's true. If you're not idling, you're not, uh, you're not well, putting you're more just air sitting there and, in the air. And there's an empty lane. And Tim Jackson with the auto dealers, they went and bought those, you know, little things. And they did experiments in the afternoon rush hour, how many bikes there were on these bike lanes on Broadway and Lincoln. And I think it was Broadway. And it was like Neil. Yeah. Uh, having the Broadway's on my commute, and I, I would certainly join that kind of question. Well, one yeah. time when I was going downtown, and I, I talked about how 15th Street, which used to be that great feeder through downtown, mm -hmm. had become a nightmare because you had the designated bus lane and the bike lane. And I put it on Twitter, and all these people jumped on all over me. And I'm like, hey, when I lived in Highlands and Ranch, I rode the 24X. What did you guys do? Crickets, <laughs> you know? Indeed. Uh, Patty, do you think Denverite's going to take RTD and the state on their offer of free transit? Let's hope so. If they, if this plan really goes through, and let's face the legislature certainly has been interested in monkeying around with RTD for a while because RTD needs some monkeying around with. Uh, I think this is not just a good move for emissions. It's, that's actually less, even though it's the argument, it's important to see do people want to ride 
public transit at all right now. Ridership fell off because of the pandemic. It wasn't fun to be having a fight on the bus with someone who wouldn't put on their mask. And it's time to see, can it really work here? And what it, what is it going to take to make it appealing to people? Certainly, the security is an issue. We're seeing that right now at Union Station in the terminal. What are they going to do to make sure the buses um, are safe? And it's going to be especially tough if you don't even have to have a, I don't even know what they'll do if you can go in for free. You don't have to worry about the turnstile at the terminal bus. But it's important for people to see it's a possibility. But for it to be a possibility, it has to work. It has to be on time. You have to have bus drivers. You can't stop the A-line, you know, reduce it for to half, every half hour because you don't have anyone to manage it. I mean, RTD has a lot of things they would have to work out before this would be a successful experiment. The Denver City Council approved a new redistricting map this week, giving the thumbs up to Map D in a 12 to 1 vote. Map D will shift parts of downtown from North Denver to Capitol Hill and move Cherry Creek, Country Club, and East Colfax into new districts. Lynn, you have covered redistricting on the federal level, state level, and the local level mm -hmm. for, for years. Um, how did this process go? Is it a big deal? Um, how did the council do? Well, it's always a big deal, and people will tell you who participated in the one 10 years ago that this was much more open and much more taking of people's comments. I mean, I think the one thing I've learned is, is that I don't think most people know whose district they live in. When I moved into Denver from Highlands Ranch, I, I had to call and ask who my people were, and I actually am pretty up on those things. <laughs> the other thing, Denver is so great, and Patty can attest to that. In North Denver, you know your boundaries, because two of them, you know, aren't, aren't part of the city. But once, you know, once I moved to near like Nine News, I'd have to call and say, now who's my person again? And they're all being switched the, on the state level because of um, you know, the redistricting. I, Candy C.D. Baca voted against it, which tells me it was probably good map. <laughs> Patty, I figured that once all the negotiating about which district you would be in among the council, once that was uh, settled, that everything else went smoothly. Um, what do you think of the final map? I think the final map is pretty good. Um, and it was really interesting to watch the process. You would have the city council people in the beginning kind of signing on for one map. And there were some tweaks made to it, not a lot. Others proposed thing. Kevin Flynn had proposed one. He pulled it out early. A couple other council members had combined on one. But ultimately, except for Candy, Everyone agreed on this one. I like what it does to downtown. I like it that it puts it in with the Golden Triangle, with most of Capitol Hill. That's, those are really areas of concern that they have the same kinds of concerns. I think probably ultimately Candy's district is going to be better for her. I think that's a really good one to put um, those areas together. I think it's great that all of East Colfax is now together because they share concerns. There are always going to be quibbles and... You know, it's always one of the things you don't want to necessarily think about, will the incumbents have to move? As it turns out, they don't have to move. <laughs> that has been brought up. Yeah, David, one of the other proposals that came up in the conversation was we still have the two at-large members. Should Denver just expand the number of districts because we have so many more people? Um, that didn't go anywhere, but I'm wondering <coughs> if it seems that we should be on the cusp of trying to think a little bit more creatively, or is the status quo good? What do you think? Well, the, doing that would require the voters to approve an, an amendment to the, the Denver City Charter, and they're, they're free to put that out. You know, the, the hope when this idea of at-large members was created 
decades ago was for some would be a chance for a candidate gets uh, citywide visibility. It might be a stepping stone for, for potential future mayors. And as it, it turned out, that that's never happened. The I mean, it's it's an honor to be at large elected by the people of all of Denver. Uh, but those people have have almost never, as far as I can remember, advanced to some higher office, which doesn't mean it's wrong. It's also okay to have somebody who does have to think about the city and not just their uh, more parochial interests. I thought the map was great, and I would say congratulations to the Denver City Council. The If you look at the map, which you can in Westward, uh, the districts are very contiguous. They have a lot of straight lines, except where you know the Platte River goes through or something. Um, where, um, they're, by the charter, they're required to be uh, compact, uh, have almost completely equal populations. And the Denver City Council also back last year said when we draw the districts, we're not going to draw, we're going to comply with the Constitution and not draw them for racial preferences or something else if that would undermine our obligations or our, our other legal obligations. So I think they, they did a great job and th the system worked. Hey, well, I want to piggyback on that. Certainly, this go ahead. The idea that they needed more council people because the city has grown is ludicrous. There's the same number of state lawmakers as there were when this was a very, very small population state, and you look at it now. I mean, I never bought that, and, and I don't think people should. Well, yes, you've got more work because there's more of a population. Yes, at some point, I get your point there, Linda. You have more yeah. staff, too. Yeah. Yeah. True. Let's get to our fourth topic. Longtime radio talk show host and former host of this very program, Peter Boyles, officially retired earlier today. Peter has consistently been one of the top-rated morning radio shows over the many decades he's been on the air in Denver with many different stations in the market. He also hosted Colorado Inside Out for 14 years and our Wednesday Night Live program for seven. Here's a clip of some of Peter's history with our show from our 25th anniversary documentary. Let's take a look. Hi, welcome again to Colorado Inside Out. I'm Peter Boyles. I do the morning show on AM760 KTOC. The family that put the fun and dysfunction is with us. Everybody's together. <laughs> Last year, Eric was downtown seeing a mime hit by the light rail turning to me and saying, Peter, a mime is a terrible thing to waste. Ladies and gentlemen, Eric Sonderman. <laughs> you need a snare drum. <laughs> Thank you. Colorado Inside Out, also known as the McLaughlin Group on Prozac. It has been a week. <laughs> It's been a week indeed. That last one was my very favorite nickname, Peter, half of the show, the McLaughlin Group on Prozac. Uh, Patty, you were at Patty's, uh, Peter's big um, fest today, this morning with his final show. Uh, his legacy will be long in Denver, but what do you take away from his retirement for many decades in Denver media? There are a couple different lessons from it. One is just how much the media has changed, that really that kind of power for a radio talk show host, I'm not sure we'll see that again. We don't know who's going to replace Peter yet. But when you think about how there were two big daily papers when he started, you saw the, the network TV, the local TV stations had a lot more power, just really changed the landscape. And we were talking about who are the next personalities that will really come out? Because talk radio did create personalities. Although Peter certainly had plenty of a personality when he started. I think he, his, he was first on air as a traffic reporter. Dan Hopkins, who was later Bill Owens' press secretary, kind of brought him in. And so you saw him there. You saw Mike Rosen. You saw Dan Kaplis. You saw 
uh, I think uh, Tom Martino showed up, or mm -hmm. at least was on the radio. Mm -hmm. You saw decades of people who were in the radio industry and how much that industry has changed. And then you just also saw how much Peter has changed over the years from the, like the rock jock, the, he was on a country station, and then when he got into actually taking on issues Sometimes serious issues, sometimes not, sometimes from the left, sometimes from the right, sometimes you weren't sure where he was coming from. And just when he was in your chair, mm -hmm. it was always a kick in the pants to be on this show because you never knew quite what was going to happen, who would get the pencil thrown at them. But he's had a great long-running career, and it shows with this audience and with his audience how much people want to connect and how much shows like this are important to create community. David, I know uh, as your tenure started about about 98, I guess, uh, you had a lot of back and forth with Peter. Um, he's about one of the only, the, the three most well-read people I know are you, Peter Boyle, is my father. And he's one of the only folks that as you were going, it would, it could at least talk about history to the kind of extent the two of you would. Um, what do you take away both from his history on this show and his history in Denver media overall? Well, I, I think it's huge. I mean, I was the first time I appeared on one of his radio shows was in, in 1988, and he was a long-standing major figure in Denver long before that. I, I think it's important that, that he was not just a morning radio talk personality where you could hear some chatter and, you know, you're, you're shaving and, you know, want to make sure that uh, the world hasn't blown up, because if it did, then you wouldn't want to waste time going to work. He was so much more than that. He really... And as I said, he, he sometimes came with things from the left, from, from the right, but really from his own independence. He advanced a lot of stories. He brought a lot. He, in that earlier media days when the Post was a high-quality paper and was also competing against the Rocky, which was another high-quality paper, and we had the, the four uh, major TV, uh, local TV news channels. But among those six, if a story didn't get covered, people were kind of locked out and Peter was really somebody who helped kind of break that monopoly, bring new, bring new dissenting different voices forward. There were certainly stories he covered where I think in retrospect you'd say he, he went too far down a rabbit hole, got on the wrong side, um, and others where he really exposed things and, and, and made things better. Um, so I, I think he's a gigantic, uh, truly uh, one of the, the people at the very apex of, of Colorado's Radio Hall of Fame. Lynn, uh, Peter's never been afraid of controversy and has been on a lot of sides, a lot of issues. But as you look at the impact of someone who will push the story and have a megaphone to a lot of people, that makes a big difference. I don't know if we really have anyone who really follows that just because it's been part of a legacy of media that's changed. What do you take away from Peter's retirement? Well, I think it's sad that he's retiring at this point because Peter is absolutely right about the big lie, you know, that Trump's election was stolen. And at least we have somebody of his influence and his caliber saying that these allegations are ridiculous. I was, you know, when I started covering politics, that's when I started being a guest on here. And I always said the best show was the half hour. We're waiting for it to start and Mike checking and everything else. His knowledge of music was unbelievable. and. I mean, he was just so, and the fact that one time he asked, you know, his pop quiz on music, and I got it right that it was Glenn Campbell. Like, the idea that I would get something right on music is like, you know, if I got something right on math, it would be just as shocking. But, um, you know, I moved here in 93. I covered cops. And you, start, you started learning you had to be on Peter Boyles, or you had to listen to Peter Boyles. Um, 
a lot of times, you know, you listened in the morning. You still had to go to work, David. Maybe for you, you didn't. <laughs> but uh, at the end of the world, I'm sure we'd still have to go and cover it. But you were like, okay, what's going to be the thing they're going to assign me to today is what Peter is making a big deal out of. When I moved here, the airport was under construction. And that Peter lived for that story, as we know. Sometimes rightly and sometimes wrongly. But, yeah, he's, he's amazing. He really is. And you're right, Patty, when you say, who's going to, you know, it'll yeah. be a long time before you have somebody of that. That's that, that, that kind of caliber. Well, absolutely right. wasn't Siri or whatever you call, what is it, the thing on your radio, Sirius or whatever? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, I, you know. Um, well, I, I know you if listened. Peter, you're absolutely right. He, he absolutely listened. I know uh, we, we need to get to our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week, uh, before we run out of time. Patty, as always, start us off. You look down Welton Street, where this studio is, and you see historic Five Points, a lot of black-owned businesses. Lately, they have been completely screwed over by the Fly Fisher Group, which came in and was going to help them, but has definitely hurt. So keep an eye out for what's going on in Welton Street. David. Well, a long-standing disgrace is while people are justifiably opposed to the Vladimir Putin's evil empire and its war of aggression against Ukraine, the, the cancellation of ordinary Russian people and culture, like symphonies saying they won't even perform Rachmaninoff. Well, one small antidote to that is this new uh, CD, uh, Three Centuries of Russian Viola Sonatas, uh, performed by a professor at Denver University's Lamont School of Music. And a lot of these are things that have actually never had a, a high-end recording of them. Uh, so destroy the evil empire and respect the great culture of the Russian people. Lynn. My disgrace of the week is going to be the Colorado Republican Party which is intent on making itself smaller and even least significant. This fundraising for Tina Peters, the supporting of Tina Peters, they are ensuring that Jenna Griswold, the Democrat Secretary of State, whom they despise, is going to get reelected. Time to say something nice about somebody rather quickly. Patty. It was an April Fool's joke out of the governor's office, but I endorse the idea of Jared Polis diving from the cliff at Casa Bonita when it opens. <laughs> David. The Colorado legislature, which has been unanimously advancing a bill to help charter schools provide services uh, to uh, students with disabilities, and that the funding, that so much of which gets sucked up by the school districts uh, for special education, could go directly to the charter schools. Lynn. Speaking of April Fools, I don't think it was any, you know, coincidence at all that Dominic had me on today <laughs> for that reason. This guy is just amazing, a longtime friend. And what I always loved is if I watched the show and I saw something that's not right, I could call Dominic and say, hey, you might not realize this, but ballot measures do this. I'll send you the cheat sheet for it, you know. You always have had my Never back, offended. Lynn. Never that's, that's very kind. You've always had my back. And I will say something nice about our friend Peter Boyles. Peter, you're the GOAT. It was a pleasure being on the show today with you, and uh, my best to you in your retirement chapter. That is all the time we have for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. For everybody here at PBS 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night.